Within the play Clouds by Aristophanes, the second play by his namesake mentioned on this podcast, he introduces Socrates within his thinkery as physically suspended by rope in a basket, treading air, then lowering himself down and responding to the question of what he was doing by saying, I tread the air as I contemplate the sun. This comic portrayal of Socrates, as being a sophist, with his head literally in the clouds, unable to meaningfully connect with the common person, underlies a common portrayal of Socrates and philosophers in many ancient works, like Lucian and other cynics, as being the target of mockery. Plato, as a result of this, had a disdain for comedy, viewing laughter as an emotion that overrides reason, and imagining the description of Socrates as a comic character whom one ought to laugh at as insulting and being a primary cause that led to Socrates' execution. Considering his world historical significance, Plato's hatred of comedy has had an incredibly long-lasting effect on the Western philosophical canon's view of the relationship between humor and philosophy. Philosophy is a serious topic, which cannot be insulted by mixing humor into it. Since Plato, most philosophers have viewed humor as an anti-intellectual force that challenges the role of philosophy and the philosopher within society. The Aristotelian satiric tradition takes note, as Aristotle views the role of the ironist as one who uses laughter to criticize those who go beyond the limits of social and cultural norms. Laughter is a mocking force, which is exercised to highlight the movement beyond the perceived limitations of the individual. As seen in Aristophanes, though, Aristotle perceived this mocking force as dangerous and limited its potential scope uh, greatly for what it possibly could positively produce. The primary example of comic depictions of Socrates, which led Plato to disdain comedy, come from Aristophanes. Aristophanes was a widely acclaimed poet within ancient Athens, who is responsible for many well-known comic plays, many of whom have survived today. One of these was a play known as The Clouds, which portrayed Socrates as a character type. Character types, or comic characters, in ancient Greece are an important aspect of ancient Greek comedy, and were designed to be mocked. Examples of such character types being the grumpy old man, the miser, or the boaster. The development of the comic character of the philosopher in ancient Greece hinged around the conception of a younger Socrates as being a bumbling sophist, who asked absurd questions and engaged in bizarre dialogues with strangers. The development of Socrates and the philosopher in ancient Athens around this character type is a primary motivation for Plato's view that the role of the philosopher is one who is mocked by society. Creating the difference between the figure of the philosopher properly conceived and the popular misperception of the bumbling or politically dangerous intellectual. The character type of the philosopher being politically dangerous is a particular important note, considering the connection Plato makes between Aristophanes' play The Clouds and the negative public opinion surrounding Socrates within Athens, which led to his trial and execution. Socrates, importantly, functioned primarily as a comic figure within ancient works which referenced him. To quote, Refiguring Socrates, Comedy and Corporeality in the Socratic Tradition by Daniel MacLean, quote, In old comedy, in Lucianic satire, and in the works of the cynics and of some Socratic authors, the figure of Socrates was largely a comic figure. This, of course, connects to the general character type within ancient Greek comedy of the philosopher, an example of such being the joke surrounding Thales, Western philosophy's oldest known philosopher, where he stumbles into a well because he's too interested in the heavens to notice what is under his feet. The comic archetype of the philosopher contingent upon 
an estrangement from one's context and an alienation from one's body within many ancient authors provides us with a perception of the philosopher as a bumbling scatterbrain. Plato, importantly, worked very hard in his depiction of Socrates to erase this archetype, perceiving the ancient world as not taking the philosopher, Socrates, seriously enough to emulate his love of the pursuit of knowledge. In a certain sense, Plato viewed comedy as a barrier to knowledge, where the philosopher character type was unable to be taken seriously as a result of the ignorance of people such as Aristophanes. One of the larger scale effects of the comic mocking of Socrates within his lifetime and its relationship to his execution is the dislike of comedy within Plato's philosophy, which had a significant effect upon the Western philosophical canon. Plato clearly disregarded comic theater and theater in general as a mode for generating knowledge and carefully worked to depict Socrates entirely out of the context of the extremely common depiction of him as humorous. This belief further extends to much of the Western philosophical canon, where philosophy is viewed as a serious matter which should not be mixed with comedy. While Plato's disdain for comedy affects the wider philosophical tradition in an important way, his most important immediate student, Aristotle, works in some ways, although arguably hollowly, to repudiate Plato's claim that laughter is an irrational force. Aristotle treated pedaia, pronouncing that wrong, which means to be at play or to be amused, ancient Greek word, as not an end in itself, but a means to an end. Aristotle believed one should play in order to be serious, meaning that while Aristotle did not see comedy as an end in itself, and the pursuit of comedy as an end in itself, it did have the capacity to generate pleasure and move the individual towards an understanding of the world. We do not have access to the second half of Aristotle's Poetics, which is about comedy, but a meaningful account of his view can be drawn from the first half, which is on tragedy. Following Plato's influence, Aristotle believed that comedy was lower than tragedy. Tragedy was rooted in the Dithyram, which is the, a wine-drinking festival for Dionysus, representing a sort of unrestrained, chaotic, and irrational force. While for Aristotle, comedy was rooted in phallic songs. There is, for Aristotle, an arete, which is the ancient Greek word for excellence or mastery related to humans functioning at a higher level, for the tragedy that simply cannot exist in comedy. Comedy, for the ancients in general, but also specifically for Aristotle, was about limitations and the effects of transcending these limitations. Importantly for Aristotle, these limitations related to social and cultural norms, and the absurd and shameful that one ought to laugh at in the comic medium was one who transgressed these norms. Aristotle retains Plato's account of comedy as the spectator's superior position laughing at those who are lower than them. Comic characters are lesser or lower type than tragic ones, requiring the comic characters to be lesser than us socially. Aristotle limits the role of the comedy quite a bit, where the role of comic satire is to target moral crimes as an ideal member of society, where the orator is typically one of higher social standing, laughing at one of lower. Aristotle's conception of satire within poetics has a long-lasting effect upon the idea of satire, where the Aristotelian satiric tradition extends through Cicero to Aquinas, even through to Freud. There is a greater perspective of preferring tragedy to comedy that hangs within the Western philosophical tradition, especially Greek thinkers from Kant to Heidegger and even Nietzsche, which begins with the Aristotelian articulation within poetics, even though, of course, Nietzsche prefers tragedy to comedy for a different reason. It is only really until Hegel 
that we see a significant figure in the Western philosophical canon who rebukes the typical account of tragedy as more important than comedy. We see that in Phenomenology of Spirits, Hegel views comedy as the highest stage of poetry and of art. Aristophanes and comedy is elevated to the level of Pericles, Sophocles, and Socrates as equal to statesmanship, tragedy, and philosophy. While tragedy concerns a dualism of the individual who at one time knows but does not know, a dualism between that which appears, appearance, and reality itself. This dualism is one of many manifestations within Hegel of the spiritual work of art, which for Hegel contains a combination of splits or dualisms between the human and the divine, subject and substance, contingency and necessity, individual and universal, self-consciousness and external existence, inner essential world and world of action, subject and object, etc. Meaningful artworks are attempts to diffuse or resolve these dualisms and splits, where the highest form of comedy works to do so the best. The dualisms manifest in the tragedy of appearance and reality become resolved within the two equally justifiable positions of the fate of the gods and the tragic hero, where the tragic hero is unable to take into account the wisdom provided to him, his reality, and is subsumed within his tragic fate. Comedy, contrastingly, when done correctly, synthesizes these dualisms. The actor within a comedy has the capacity to play the universal role, or the comic character, alongside remaining an individual person, where both individual subjectivity and universality are applied. Quote, if comedy reaches its purpose, tragedy would be neither needed at all nor even possible. The comedy is able to both provide a counterweight to the fate of the gods, quote, by depicting the human being in concreto, or in other words, entangled in an actual existence. In the highest form of comedy, we have the realization of Hegel's primary goal within Phenomenology of Spirit, in which the particular is engrossed within the universal while not being for the sake of the particular's elimination as a particular. Hegel imagined that Aristophanes' plays had the capacity to disclose in a profound way the matters which were essential to the Athenian polis, and, by extension, the state. There was a defense within Aristophanes of the Athenian state, from those within it who attempt to bring it down, the Sophists, Euripides, Socrates. This should not make any anarchists listening hate comedy, as what should be taken from this analysis is that the comedy has a deep affinity with human subjectivity and its relationship to the external world, grounding the objective state as it developed against figures whose subjective reason and questioning posed a threat to it. The limited role of comedy within the Aristotelian satirical tradition is rebuked. To quote Alenka Sapanchich in The Odd One In, quote, Comedy is not the understanding of the universal, but its own reversal into the concrete. It is not an objection to the universal, but the concrete labor or work of the universal itself. Or, to put it in a single slogan, comedy is the universal at work. Importantly, Hegel is not the only significant philosophical figure within the Western canon to appreciate both comedy and Aristophanes. Nietzsche goes even beyond the Hegelian reading, seeing Aristophanes as understanding the threat that Socrates played to Athenian society and on the Athenian youth. Nietzsche sees Socrates' portrayal in Clouds as a genius reversal of the historical Socrates, with a Socratic movement away from the changing temporal world of nature and process 
and towards the unchanging realm of the ideal forms is represented as Socrates having his head literally within the clouds, treading air and examining the very same natural world that the historical Socrates renounces. Aristophanes turned Socrates into the primary thing within Athens that he opposed, the sophist, where Socrates desired in the world an attempt at finding the strongest logos, viewed by him within the Platonic Dialogues as the essential form of a phenomenon. This Logos was a movement away from the natural earthly world of change towards the unchanging realm of the forms. In an ironic reversal of the historical Socrates, he is introduced within clouds treading air within a basket, examining the natural phenomenon of the world. Furthermore, Socrates was contextualized as a sophist, within clouds attempting to help one of his students make a weaker argument appear stronger. This is, of course, the exact reversal of the historical Socrates within Plato's writing, that wishes to make stronger arguments appear weaker. Aristophanes presents us with a counter-instinctual image of Socrates, where Socrates attempts to invert instinct and turn it into itself, as he does in so many dialogues written by Plato. Aristophanes rejects this with the perversion of instinct, providing an image of Socrates that was both counter-instinctual to his contemporaries within Athens and also to all those who became heirs to his teachings. Nietzsche points to the fact that under the pillow of Plato's deathbed was Aristophanes' comedies. Plato requires an earthly comedy to counterbalance his heavenly dialogues, where the role of Aristophanes is that of grounding philosophy, of providing some meaningful limit to the Socratic pondering of the forms which transcends our earthly world. The Apollonian ponderings of Socrates are sterilized from the real world and wiped of any meaningful, balanced, Dionysian connection to the emotional, tempered earthly world. Thus, Plato requires this Dionysian counterbalance of Aristophanes to even function. Nietzsche views the fact that this is only truly revealed upon Plato's deathbed to be indicative of the seriously damaging nature of Plato's work within Western philosophy. To quote from Beyond Good and Evil, quote, Nothing I know has given me a better vision of Plato's secrecy and sphinx nature than the happily preserved petit fait. Under the pillow of his deathbed, they did not find a Bible or anything Egyptian, Pythagorean or Platonic, but instead Aristophanes. How could even a Plato have endured life, a Greek life that he had said no to, without an Aristophanes? The primary error within Socratic philosophy for Nietzsche is the inability to connect the emotional, self-interested individual into the philosophical method for understanding, where poetry and philosophy are seen as opposed. What Nietzsche finds within Plato secretly valuing Aristophanes and his comedies greatly, but writing in the Republic, for instance, that philosophy and poetry are diametrically opposed and the philosophical method must ignore and control artistic expression, is a deep dishonesty within Plato and his writings. In later works by Nietzsche, he seems to shift the blame for the hatred within philosophy of the emotional Dionysian away from Socrates and specifically onto Plato, where Socrates, during his jail sentence, composes a prelude to Apollo and turns some Aesopian fables into verse. For Nietzsche, what this represents is the need which Socrates eventually recognized of complementing and completing philosophy with art. The vision within the Republic of music and philosophy being so diametrically opposed is rebuked with the emergence of a Socrates who practices music, 
While Plato still also clearly needs this Dionysian artistic emotional element, as demonstrated with his secret love of Aristophanes, this element of himself remains hidden within his dialogues. Importantly, Nietzsche sees folly in play not as opposite to wisdom, but a necessary, unavoidable human activity, where our greatest achievements are in many cases not connected to the perfection of seriousness, but the error and failures of a child at play. Zarathustra says, quote, For the sake of folly, wisdom is mixed into all things. This is exactly what Plato wishes not to recognize, and ultimately what is truly wrong within his philosophy and its legacy. For Nietzsche, human excellence is in many situations associated and connected with our failures and shortcomings, both as an individual and as a species. Nietzsche uses comedy as a way to combat philosophical excess, drawing from the greater understanding of comedy that even Aristotle believed in relation to comedy and excess, where this excess that Nietzsche is parodying is a direct product of philosophers who overestimate their own capacities and limitations of hubristic thought within Western philosophy. The first of these, of course, is the hubris represented within Socrates, of believing that the strongest form of logos could be identified and found within the realm of the forms, without referring to the real, changing natural physical world. To quote from Nietzsche in comedy, provocative laughter amidst a tragic philosophy by Rudar, quote, to combat this excess, Nietzsche rarely took the tactic of the typical philosopher. He did not respond, for the most part, to his philosophical nemeses with lengthy, logical, solid treaties. Instead, as we shall see, to counter such hubris thought, Nietzsche many times turns them into laughter-provoking comic moments. Occurring not merely to ridicule, these laughter-provoking moments erupt in a way that makes them teachable moments. What they teach, more often than not, is that some measures have been exceeded and thus need restored. All this from the philosopher who philosophizes with a hammer and reveals in transgression. When Nietzsche writes of Kant within Beyond Good and Evil, he says, quote, How are synthetic judgments a priori possible? Kant asks himself. And what is really his answer? By means of a means, faculty. But unfortunately, not simply in five words. When Nietzsche writes to the utilitarians, also within Beyond Good and Evil, he says, quote, In the end, they all want English morality to be recognized as authoritative, in so much as mankind or the general utility or the happiness of the greatest number. No, the happiness of England will be best served thereby. They would like, by all means, to convince themselves that the striving after English happiness, I mean after comfort and fashion, and in the highest instance a seat in Parliament, is at the same time the path of virtue. Nietzsche's wit is a very integral element of his writing style and philosophy. Much of why he makes one laugh is integral to the critiques he provides of social norms, of the Western philosophical tradition, of objective morality, etc. Nietzsche also rebukes the Aristotelian satiric tradition, or the defining of the comic in moral and social terms. To quote The Idea of Comedy by Jan Hawkinson, quote, The social norm is the laughing stock of the gay science. Within thus spoke Zarathustra, Zarathustra invites the higher men to a last supper, and returns to find the men worshipping an ass. This mocking parody of the last supper, and Nietzsche's laughter in general, is a corrective laughter of the social in its entirety a critique of Judeo-Christian social organization, and a critique of rational thinking. Nietzsche's laughter is not one of shaming that which does not adhere to social norms. It is a laughter of deconstruction, not towards homogeneity, but heterogeneity. 
Nietzsche's laughter is one that is aimed at the philosophies and ideologies that deny and disavow difference. The ironist, then, would of course mock the Übermensch and Nietzsche's philosophy by extension, for its incessant drive to break these very same social roles through laughter. Nietzsche's laughter plays an opposing role as it does within the Aristotelian tradition. Those who are mocked for breaking the bounds of society look up at the ironist and begin to laugh back at them. Nietzsche is, of course, not envisioning some sort of underclassed, marginalized deconstruction of power structures, but of the rare single individual who has the capacity to transcend social bounds. Nietzsche's philosophy is that of the individual against society far more than it is of a political doctrine of liberation. Nevertheless, what Nietzsche's laughter stands for is the undoing of the Aristotelian role of the ironist cementing and enforcing social norms and the use of laughter against non-normative actions. What Nietzsche positions us towards is some meaningful form of humor which has the capacity to expose weaknesses within social and political institutions. The Dionysian style of philosophizing with the hammer can of course be synthesized with the Nietzschean style of humor and wit within a left-wing critique of power structures. Furthermore, what exists within Nietzsche is an initial breaking away of philosophy's disdain for comedy. The rejection of Plato's view within the Republic that for philosophy to flourish, the arts, poetry, tragedy, comedy, etc. must be suppressed is meaningfully targeted and transcended as opposed to the Aristotelian satiric tradition, which attempts to work within the bounds of Plato's disdain for comedy. Uh, this concludes the first part of this episode and wraps this up relatively well. I'm deciding to sort of split this into two parts. Um, the second part I will upload soonish, if you're listening to this, like as soon as I uploaded it, uh, behind a $2 paywall on my Patreon, which is also you know, patreon.com slash liveposting. Uh, which will go over Zizek's idea of comedy um, and Lacan's reading of Hegel and the conceptualization of comedy as playing not with the finitude of humanity, as all of these authors, Plato, Aristotle, Nietzsche, and others have agreed is what comedy is typically conceptualized as, but playing with humanity's failure to exist as a finite being, important Lacanian concept. I will also be synthesizing this with what Alanka Supancic, who is actually another Slovenian, Lacanian, Hegelian, psychoanalytic philosopher, um, says about Lacan and Hegel and humor within her book, The Odd One In. So yeah, if you're interested in that, it's behind a, a $2 paywall. Um, there isn't much on my Patreon. There's another episode I made a while ago about um, the 2019 Canadian election and my thoughts on it. But yeah, if you're interested in that, uh, please give me $2.